It's spring and you want to hike, bike, hit up the farmer's market, but the last thing you want to do on a warm, sunny morning is clean house. That's where Greenland Pro Cleaning comes in. They're eco-friendly, allergy-friendly, and locally owned in Asheville. Listeners of The Overlook get a free upholstery and refrigerator cleaning upgrade with their first booking. Just use the code PODCAST at checkout. Make the most of your time this spring and visit GreenlandProCleaning.com slash overlook. Imagine, you're a classical music composer about to premiere your final symphony. Behind the scenes, your family and a stranger are about to throw everything into disarray. Welcome to A God in the Waters, the latest play by the venerable Asheville writer David Brendan Hopes. Look for a lot of laughs, but also a deeper reflection on the making of art and its impact on the people closest to the genius at work. The Sublime Theater presents A God in the Waters, May 9th through 18th at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and details, go to thesublimetheater.org. Comes in, let the spirit pour out my pen. Vessel open, it's the porous be of my skin. Soft as milk, honey, butter, and sin. Soaking up the UV, see me in your rear view. Double take, Lucy clearly got clearance. Yes, I'm money make. You won't find much online from the emerging local artist who calls herself Lucia. She's the daughter of a flutist and a flute maker, but she calls her own music goddess rap. We'll meet her and hear about her impulses and influences in the second half of this program. But first, we'll meet up with the choreographic couple Vanessa Owen and Gavin Stewart. The pandemic changed their approach on and off the dance floor. They make duets, dances for larger ensembles, and outdoor pieces, and and they collaborate with other artists. We don't really put ourselves into a creative box, which is frustrating often. We're like, oh man, we wish we had a defined thing to say, this is what we do. This is the kind of dance we make. But that's just not the case. I think we're too interested in too many different kinds of work. Vanessa Owen and Gavin Stewart live in Flat Rock, and until the pandemic, they were performing all over the country. They're in residency next week at Trillium Arts in Mars Hill and performing next April at the Wortham Center in Asheville. I began our conversation by asking how the pandemic affected the dances they make and whether that impact has continued to this day. A big thing that's that shifted for us was our audience itself. So there are a lot of people who just don't ever go to theaters that maybe it's just not in their tradition or maybe it just doesn't feel like a welcoming space or a familiar space for them. And I think bringing dance into places like parking lots or it could even just be local community spaces, parks and bars and wherever it is that people exist inherently does bring you new audience members and people who aren't used to seeing the kind of work we do. And so I think that is something that is really exciting for us and helps us step outside of the concert dance box that, that as artists, you can feel trapped by the genre in which you create work. And a lot of that has to do with knowing that your work comes with the limits of the space it exists in and also maybe the expectations of 
the audience when they think of concert contemporary dance. But if we step in and out of that space, it just feels a little more freeing to us to explore with what can contemporary dance do besides this thing that we've been doing with it all these years. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that a little more in terms of how that has impacted your vocabulary, your voices mm. as dancers, and what you want to say as dancers. Mm. What are you trying to communicate now, and how are you communicating it in ways that maybe prior to 2020 wouldn't have occurred to you? The impact of the vocabulary started on a microscopic level to the, maybe to somebody on the outside. Like for us, it was huge that we weren't able to like slide on a surface where we used a lot of movements that relied on us on the matting on the floor, the marley on the floor to make ourselves be perceived as graceful, for instance. So, so to inform audiences a little more, you performed on asphalt that you performed in parking lots where it was a hundred degrees of heat coming off the parking lot among other surfaces, I'm sure. So continue your thought. I just want to give context to that. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. So, so that was the first sort of shock to us of, can we do this and do this safely (laughs) and still bring the level of detail to the work that, that we want to? (laughs) And the answer was yes, but just in a completely different way. So to answer your question a little bit more specifically, specifically about the parking lot piece, like we had people in the round in a 90 by 90 space. And so in order to show detail to somebody, we literally would have to travel to their car in the round. And then they would only see us from maybe the knees up in their car. So we couldn't use our footwork in the same kind of way to inform the movement that we wanted to project to them. So just to, for further context, yeah. you're performing in the parking lot of the Asheville Mall, right? Yeah, the Asheville Outlet. Ash, yeah. Ash, and people could get out of their car if they wanted to, sure. right, on lawn chairs or something. But yeah. there were a lot of people who just pulled up in, you know, into their spaces in their car and watched yeah. from their car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, like, in order for us to... What we felt, our our sort of reaction to that was, let's make things that are just a little bit bigger in the body instead of making the movement nuanced. And so that informed how we composed the pieces. And it was a bit clunky and awkward for us at the start. And even from our perspective of the art that we made as a linear piece of work, oh, this, how could we do this and make it even better next time? A little less clunky conceptually, a little less clunky compositionally but then even as the dancer like how can we keep bringing that sort of graceful perspective to the movement to the composition to the viewer and it's to expand what our idea of nuance and detail is and just project our bodies bigger essentially i think we're trying to figure out how do we keep what we learned in those big spaces and bring them to small spaces small theaters maybe even not theaters we have an idea for fall 24 to do an immersive performance and so we're curious and that's something that we did in the pandemic as well curious how we continue to cultivate the ideas that we touched on during the pandemic and nourish them and grow them into more more realized artworks as opposed to like trying to reinvent every single time i was just going to add that we in the opposite direction of what we did in the parking lot show, the other thing we did do a lot of during the pandemic was film work, which often would be 
really zoomed in. So maybe we're just showing the hands or just showing the feet or the shoulders. And so what we've talked about a lot is that during the past few years, our, the biggest stretch for us create, creatively has been this constant changing of perspective because we've now worked in so many different kinds of spaces and also on screen. And whereas before we were pretty much just doing proscenium performances, like audience sits in this one place, views us from this one angle, sees our whole body at the distance, but they can still see your face. And now every time we make work, the first thing I think we really talk about is what is the audience perspective for this work. And now with our, we've got upcoming performances that are in a black box theater, as Gavin mentioned in the spring, we'll be at the Wortham center again, but in the Tina McGuire theater and their black box there. And that's really exciting because it's between those two worlds of a giant space versus the tiny detail that you can show on screen. And I think that feels really exciting because we can combine and pull from sort of both worlds there. What has changed or evolved about what you want to say in your movement? Your collaboration with Gina Cornejo, storyteller mm-hmm. and poet, uh, did that inform your sense of narrative or story or point of view that you want to put across in movement in a way that you hadn't indulged before? Yeah. Part of what drew us to Gina initially was the desire for us to want to work with text and with narrative work. And when she reached out to us, I mentioned she was a dancer and choreographer and writer and singer and actor. We were like, wow, those are all amazing things. And we definitely can speak the same language. And I think what we've learned from Gina is how important it really is to put your heart into the work. And I think that I found that to be, in my younger years, a bit cliche. <laughs> Why? What do you mean by that? Because um, you think, I think from the outside looking in, people think artists should put their heart and soul yeah, into the work. Like, Why did you find that cliche? Yeah, I think the vague word here is the work. We put our heart into the investigation and into the crafting and we put our heart into every moment but we don't always show our heart in the work if that makes sense we, was that intentional i don't know i and, don't know and i asked that because there are movements in art particularly the visual arts yeah. and it can happen in music as well and dance where it's about just physical forms yes and creating visually interesting patterns, dualities, or group movements, singularities, but not necessarily having an emotion or narrative to it. In fact, there are movements that are against that in a sense, or at least historically, you look back on in the 50s, 60s, and up to the, like the Judson uh, Dance Collective and others that changed dance, but there's still holdovers to that period. And I'm wondering if you both came up from that kind of non-emotive school that was about refined, beautiful, textural movements. And have you evolved into embracing emotive and narrative in a way you never would have thought so? I can speak for myself in saying that I definitely grew up actually in highly emotive dance training. And even through most of college was involved in like a niche part of the modern dance field that was very 
emotional and passionate. And then I went through a phase of trying to distance myself because I think what happens often, maybe not for everyone, but for me is whatever you grew up doing, maybe by the time you get to your mid twenties, you look back on that and think that's immature because I did that when I was young. And then I think also part of it was just transitioning into an even more niche sort of subset of the contemporary dance world where it was more about the movement and nothing should be too obvious or too easily understood. We have to remain, you know, true artists are mysterious or just that you shouldn't be concerned with what the audience thinks. Like it's not about them. And yeah, and I do hold on to some of that still, but then I also have these parts of myself as a performer, as a choreographer, as an audience member, where sometimes I just want to feel something and understand it and and really share something that people can connect to. But this conversation we're having right now is a conversation that Gavin and I have almost on a daily basis, is that How do we walk that line? And maybe rather than asking all of those things of ourselves in every bit of our work, maybe we have some pieces that are strictly movement and nuance. And yes, maybe we're inspired by some sort of story or even an emotion, but it doesn't need to come across. And maybe we have other pieces that are quite literally diving deep into something that is very relatable for people. We don't really put ourselves into a creative box, which is frustrating. Often we're like, oh man, we wish we had a defined thing to say, this is what we do. This is the kind of dance we make. But that's just not the case. I think we're too interested in too many different kinds of work. You're getting to something a little bit that we haven't talked about the roots of your togetherness and how you you're coupling as not as just as a couple, but as a dance couple, mm-hmm. when you first started dancing, just the two of you together, mm-hmm. was there a conversation about what do we want to do together? Or did you, was it just very organic? Like a band gets in a room and jams together. <laughs> did you do that and just dance together and find your way? How did you cast your roots? There were many conversations. (laughs) I think we had this training that we did, and we went to college, both of us, and we met at the end of our college careers. We went to different schools. How did you meet? You were at different schools. We were a part of a dance company that was a project-based company. Which one? What was that? It's called Williams Henry Contemporary Dance Company. It's in Kansas City. Are they still around? They are still around, Okay. Yeah. They're the resident company of the school that I went to university at. Okay. Vanessa graduated a year before I did and danced for the company her first year out of school, my last year in school. That was how we met. And I loved the company. I loved the work we did. And it set me on a path to trying to find the different in dance, if you will. And when Vanessa and I met, we were both in that same sort of mind space, headspace of trying to find the different in dance. And then we had some aligned interests and essentially set out together after we became romantically involved. (laughs) So you started yeah. dancing together first before you became romantically involved. Yeah. How did becoming romantically involved change your dance? Yeah, it's actually a challenging thing. It's tricky because there's an expectation you have for each other as partners. 
uh, r- romantic partners, there's an expectation you have for your dance partners, and especially in a professional standpoint, there is a professionalism that you approach the partnership with. And then there's the expectations that other people have on your relationship when you dance together. And so I think we've always been negotiating those three expectations. People will partner us together in a company, for instance, and assume, oh, you guys dance together well. You know how to do it. But it's actually been, at the start of it, it was a bit of a challenge for us to figure out how we partner together and how we create together and how we dance together. But the desire that we had to do that together was what kind of kept us doing it and also our our sort of diligence with wanting to figure it out. <laughs> Add that we're both perfectionists, which is part of what makes us very good dance partners because both of us want to work meticulously on every detail of it, but it also is part of the challenge because you stick two perfectionists together. And so we're a little slow, really. I think that's how I think of our partnership as dancers is that it takes us time to get to where we to where we really know and believe we can get together. And we've had to explain that to a lot of people when people ask us to throw something together. You're like, oh, you guys dance together all the time and you're married. So just, can you just do this dance? And it's actually, we can, but it's going to take us, it's going to take us time. And, and then we have an honesty with each other, which is another double-edged sword. If you're dancing with a partner that you're not married to, you're not going to tell them every single time that they maybe take you off your weight a little bit too far in one direction. You're not going to say that? Why would you? You pick and choose your moments of when to be honest, because there's usually only so much someone can handle, so much feedback that a person can really digest. But with us, I think we both know that we can handle the feedback, and it is hard to filter that. When you're that close to someone, you just tell them everything. How do you <laughs> how do you cast your choreographic balance? You both came up through a company, and you weren't choreographers in that company. You were dancers. And it's one thing when you're not romantic partners. There's, you're just strictly a dance couple and you operate on that end. But when you're also a romantic couple, you live together, everything about your lives are in threaded. How does that affect where you want to go artistically? How do you have conversations about let's do this versus this? Are you regularly on the same page or do you have some different aesthetics that take, takes a little bit of negotiating? Yeah. Both definitely have individual aesthetics, movement aesthetics and artistic aesthetics, but they harmonize with each other, which is where our collaboration exists. For me, I'm actually like not super inspired by concepts. I'm, I usually find inspiration in like architecture and in art and in things like that exist. And I try to describe the things that I am attracted to about those existing things through movement. I'd say that our taste is super similar, almost identical. We almost always agree from a taste standpoint on, yes, I love that. No, not that. It's, 
Almost every time. So that I think is really helpful. We're rarely in a situation where one of us feels strongly, yes, we need to do this thing. And then maybe the other one doesn't. That's pretty uncommon. One thing we haven't talked about, and I've always been fascinated with how you carved your career in the sense that you're not running a full-time dance company. You're not dancers in another company. You largely travel and you give classes, workshops, and performances elsewhere on commission sometimes. Why did you choose that route rather than have the Stuart Owen dance company and have a set space or a season locally? Why have you chosen to live largely the life of creative nomads? Up until June now, we are officially an we're incorporated as a nonprofit dance company. But up until this last year, I would say it was because we wanted to, we were interested in the freedom of what came with that conceptually. And we weren't defined by somebody else's box in that way. And we can, we could still work on our craft by ourselves. We're self-motivated. It came from necessity as well, because we didn't sure. feel that there was enough opportunity in this region professionally speaking professionally but i'm imagining that you're probably about to say that's all shifting i don't know (laughs) we're trying to we're trying to shift we're trying to be a part of shifting that why Um, and in what way do you want it to look we are here we live here we don't want to leave here we love it here we love the community here 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 yeah. We've <laughs> um, seen so many and, dancers pass in and out of this community who maybe don't want to live that lifestyle you just described of scrapping together commissions from around the country and the lifestyle of just basing here and doing your art elsewhere. It's really hard. Of course it is. It would be no matter where we lived. That comes with the challenge of there not being a lot of training opportunities and professional dancers train every day to be able to do what they do. And when we were rooted here during lockdown, that really became apparent to us that it's not just us here trying to make this dance thing work. There are other people in the community here and there are people who would like to be here, but choose not to stay or choose not to move here entirely because there isn't like a consistent space for them. And that is something that we're really working on shifting. Now we're still doing everything you described. We're still traveling. We're still taking commissions. It's a lot for us to try to do and continue doing our careers as they were pre-pandemic. It's just we're in a a new phase with that. And we're still in the old phase of pursuing our professional careers as performers and choreographers. Some of those things do work together. But it's just more of a challenge. We are in charge of finding the funding and finding the space. And luckily, we have residency at the Wortham, which is such a blessing. And they've been so wonderful to have us there. Gavin Stewart and Vanessa Owen are performing at the end of their residency next week through Trillium Arts in Mars Hill. Details are at trilliumartsnc.org. Coming up next, we'll introduce you to the self-proclaimed goddess rapper Lucia. More after this.
When you go to an Asheville City soccer club game, you're not just watching soccer, you're welcomed into what players and fans call the South Slope Blues. The South Slope Blues, they're amazing. This is the coach of the women's team, Brooke Bingham. The atmosphere is what makes Asheville City soccer so great. Longtime player Laura Greb. We have the most dedicated fans. We have our South Slope Blues. They post up in the corner of the field every game. They've got their drums, they've got their smoke, they've got their loud voices. You can hear them for miles. Elite men and women players from throughout North Carolina team up in Asheville for a two-month season against other aspiring pros from all over the Southeast. Home games this season begin May 18th at Greenwood Field on the UNC Asheville campus. For details, tickets, and your first steps into the South Slope Blues, visit Asheville City Soccer Club at AshevilleCitySC.com. The emerging Asheville rapper Lucia is the daughter of revered local flutist Kate Steinbeck and flute maker Chris Abel. She's stepping up her local performances, including an intimate September 30th date through Steinbeck's presenting organization Panharmonia. I began my conversation with Lucia by asking how the daughter of two people steeped in classical music began writing rap lyrics. I started writing songs in 2020. When I moved back home, when the pandemic hit, I was in my backyard and I just put on a beat. I've always really enjoyed rap music and hip hop and pop, like alternative pop and I don't know, just different things because I grew up listening to a lot of classical music and I love different kinds of music. Jazz has heavily influenced my work. So I was just in the backyard, and and this song came on, and I started writing to it. It wasn't predetermined on my part. It was just like there was something that needed to be said, and I was there to say it. So did you, do you play instruments yourself? No. You I don't. don't. <laughs> that, that's also really interesting that yeah. you don't. So what were you writing about, and what are you writing about? It's been a short arc from the time you started writing. Yeah beginning writing to where you are now. What were you inspired to write about? In short, the spirit world. I call it goddess rap. It's heavily influenced by my spiritual beliefs. Can you explain those? A little bit. It's like the sticky substance of magic that ties everything together in the universe. It's the in-between. As you said, it's the in-between spaces. When you were writing, were you thinking of it, I'm just writing poetry, I'm going to journal, or did you have a sense these were going to be songs? I did start out writing some poetry that summer before I wrote the songs, and I was in a, a class at school, a movement class, that was heavily influenced by sensory awareness, and one of our homework assignments was to write a poem so that, I think, almost kick-started it for me. I've, I've always written poems back as a child and such, 
but yeah, I hadn't done that in many years. So that started it and it was just like the noticing for me of how I'm feeling sensorily in my body and the influence of how I can get the energy to flow in a space based on the awareness. How does that tie into what you call goddess rap? My patron goddess, the deity that I speak to the most is Isis from the ancient Egypt. And more broadly, raising and realizing and speaking openly about the divine feminine, which is a side of the divinity that we have not in our culture so much understood or spoken about, realized. Once you started fleshing this out as song, did you find a producer right away? Because you you did have a producer for that video, right? I did. I did that in um, a home studio with a couple of friends of mine. Now I'm about to start working on my first fully fleshed out album with Drop of Sun Studio in West. And yeah, no, I didn't have a producer. I didn't even really record songs for the first year and a half, two years. And they were only like bedroom demos, I call them. I hear Middle Eastern influences a little bit. It makes me think maybe when you mentioned the goddess Isis, Mm. and I'm wondering if you feel a Middle Eastern influence within you. Yeah, absolutely. I don't really have a logical way to point to that, but it's just the, the scale that they use musically. Really, I'm getting chills right now just speaking about it. It's something else extra to me. What are some of the connecting threads you hear in your lyrics or that you're writing about? Are there themes that are recurring objects for you? Yeah, uh, definitely. Death, rebirth, transformation, goddess, tarot, magic, witchcraft. (laughs) Yeah, just as I mentioned, that in-between space, the liminal spaces that are around us always, but we're not consciously inhabiting always. So uh, in the grand tradition of a lot of rap music, it's a very self-affirming, mm, these mm-hmm. lyrics. Do you feel that you're using your songs to stamp your own empowerment? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. It's like you speak something into existence to make it true. So uh, for many years of my life, I did not feel empowered in myself or, yeah, strong. Why, why do you think that is? It seems, I don't know how, what your upbringing was like other than having two artists as parents, but why do you, do you feel you were lacking that sense of self-empowerment? Probably many different influences on that as well. I would point specifically to the, we're, we're not often taught here, I've noticed, in the U.S., in this Western society, to honor the truth that we know is inside of us instead of maybe what is happening in the collective on the outside. So 
I was weird growing up with my upbringing and being from Asheville and just having some of these awarenesses. And I didn't often fit in. And even if people liked me from the outside, I still felt like I didn't fit in. There was this conflict of knowing a truth in me that is more clearly expressed in my music now and in my authentic being now than ever before. And it being not what people was looking for from outside. How are you looking to manifest your music? Are they always going to be to program beats? Or what do you have coming up with Panharmonia? Is, this, is your mom performing alongside you? What's happening not with this? Not this time. <laughs> I, she might sometime, someday. Um, she hasn't yet? Not yet. Okay. Primarily because, as you said, I have my beats already. I bought license to beats made by other artists. And that's generally from the past three years how I've operated. But especially being from a musician family, and I do want to bring in musicians to help me create the beats and really create the soundscape. I'm just not there yet with the team. Yeah, I really just started performing for people in public spaces about a year ago. So I had to get comfortable with that first. And now that I'm ready to put this album out, ready to make it to put it out, that's like the next step. So once that is finished and I'm starting to receive whatever f- feedback or info or gifts from that, then I think, yeah, probably we'll start collaborating. It's interesting that you say you weren't getting comfortable as a performer until about a year ago, yet I'm watching you now. You're sitting in your chair performing. You're moving your arms. It's like you're performing. Let me be clear. I was an actor. I was trained as an actor. So I've been performing for over 10 years. It's not that, but it's performing singing and performing the songs that I write. Is it? Oh, that's a lot different. Very different. Exactly. Right. Yes. But so what did it take for you to get comfortable in your own music and lyrics publicly? Um, Doing it a lot, firstly. Secondly, quitting smoking weed so my voice could develop. Thirdly, taking the voice lessons, doing the meditation and the sensory awareness so I was really fully in my body. And yeah, doing shield work so that my energy stays in my sphere and the other people's energy is not interfering so much. That's interesting that you you quit smoking pot as part of this. A lot of young people are just discovering their journeys <laughs> with pot. Did anything happen? Did what was there an epiphany? Was there a singular event or anything that made you say I'm not doing this anymore or what happened? My history with drugs has been about 7 or 8 years not just pot, a lot of psychedelics, which has influenced my perspectives a lot and my music. But with the weed, it was like, it was really clogging up my sinuses and my breath support in my lungs. And I got out of a relationship almost a year and a half ago that was really codependent in that sense with the substance. And when I left that, it was like, I was still using on my own, but I knew that to make this, 
transition into being the performer and the public person that I, I wanted to be and I knew it was inside of me, I had to let it go for now. You just alluded to the psychedelics opening up, up, things up for you. Mm-hmm. Talk about psychedelics and what role they play in your creative process and you want them to play mm-hmm. or not. It's To me, it's medicine. It's very got a specific role and that is to open our minds up a little bit more to the lateral awareness. I say awareness a lot, but it's one of the only terms I really have in this language <laughs> for it. Because, yeah, it's it grounds and it opens and it brings you to the consciousness of how energy makes you feel in your body. One, 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 one. Bright pillow, attach a nerve to the sky. One figure standing upright in the spotlight. I'm glowing up, up, up. I'm growing up, up. Remember, the Overlook Live, my first live podcasting event, happens Wednesday, September 27th at the Wortham Center. You'll want to be in the audience for that, so get your tickets now at WorthamArts.org. Our First Look newsletter gives you just a handful of daily headlines from around the local media landscape to get you on your morning. We also have a weekly newsletter devoted to all things The Overlook that hits you every Friday. Both are free and available at podavl.com slash newsletter. I want to thank my guests today, Vanessa Owen and Gavin Stewart of Stewart Owen Dance and the goddess rapper Lucia. Both these conversations happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which owners Susan and Giles Collard have been so gracious enough to open to me to record my interviews. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes come out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on any social media channel at AVL Overlook. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook. Hey everyone, Matt Pikin here from The Overlook, and I'll get back to my conversation in just a moment. But I'm asking you, the listener, yes, you, listening this very moment, is The Overlook making a difference in your connection to Asheville? Do you know more about what makes this city tick and where we're struggling? If you had to give up one cup of coffee every month to do your part to keep this show going, would you step up? If you answered yes to any of that, and I really hope you did, please join dozens of other listeners by supporting The Overlook with Matt Pikin through my Patreon campaign by giving just $5 a month. Give it higher levels and you'll earn free tickets to my live podcasting events. Your support means the world to me and helps keep this show free for anyone to hear. Go to patreon.com slash the overlook podcast.